You've been reading any good books lately? Summertime, this is a good time to do it. Get yourself a nice big fat one. And enjoy it. Enjoy it. I'm reading a really good book right now. It's called Miracle at Philadelphia. It's an old book. Miracle at Philadelphia. And this book outlines the people and the issues involved in the negotiating and writing of the United States Constitution. That document really is an amazing document that grew out of an amazing process. For five very hot and humid months, delegates of the 13 colonies met in Philadelphia and did what had never before been done in the history of mankind. They created a document that was sufficiently detailed and yet flexible enough to govern initially 13 sovereign states, now 50. And it's really an amazing thing. What that document did was weld into a federal union both successfully and peacefully the ability to transition power every four to eight years. You just stop and think about that. That is really an incredible thing. I mean, if you don't think that's such a big deal, then just take a moment and reflect upon the transition of power as it occurs through the majority of the world, both contemporarily and historically. It is normally a very bloody affair. In fact, perhaps you'll recall back to the year 2000 and the Florida debacle. Do you remember that one? That was the hanging chads. And difficult as that was, and that was a difficult time, to be sure. But difficult as it was, it really is an amazing thing that it was peacefully sorted out in the courts and not at the point of a bayonet. The union survived, the government assumed responsibilities and moved forward, and those, for the most part, who were on the losing side of that very close and hotly contested election, fell in line and began to support the new government. It's really quite an amazing thing. And as I say, through most parts of the world, that just doesn't happen. Frequently, they will resort to bloodshed in such matters. You know, prior to the American Revolution, the colonists were not united on a proper course of action. I don't know if you know that or not. The American Revolution was a very hotly contested event, even among its participants. Approximately a third of the citizens of those colonies were in support of breaking from the British crown. Fully another third were very much in favor of retaining their British citizenship and were loyal to the king and crown. And then like in most societies, I suppose, there was that large undecided group in the middle who were somewhat apathetic about the whole process. But depending on which side you chose, 
And as the events unfolded, people were forced to choose sides. Depending on what size you chose, the outcome was very significant. Many who chose to stay aligned with the crown forfeited property and in some cases even their lives. It was not a peaceful affair by any stretch. Choosing sides. Open your Bibles to Romans 8. Because that's what we're going to be talking about here is choosing sides. Romans chapter 8. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, open up to page 1132. We're going to begin this morning. We won't finish today. Hopefully we'll finish next week. But looking at verses 5 through 13 of Romans chapter 8. And as we are looking at these verses, both this week and next, I want to examine with you five aspects of the conflict between the spirit and the flesh. Five aspects of the conflict between the spirit and the flesh that we must understand and apply so that we end up on the winning side. So that we end up on the winning side. Let me read This text for you, I'm going to actually go all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 8 and read through verse 13. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, it does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who indwells you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Whose side are you on? Paul tells us back in verses 1 through 4 of this chapter that we have been set free in Jesus Christ. And that we no longer reside under the condemnation of the law. That freedom, he also tells us, 
consists in the, in the, or is characterized rather, by the dethronement of sin. That its rule over us is broken. He says that there, that he condemns sin in the flesh, verse 3. So that rule of sin in the lives of the people of God has been broken. Sin has been dethroned. And the purpose of that, verse 4, is to enable the people of God to fulfill the requirement of the law of love. That was his message for us last time. He describes, really, in this section, two different kinds of people. Verse 4, you notice that those who walk according to the flesh, those who are according to the Spirit. Two different kinds of people. And in fact, I'm going to call them, at least today and probably next week as well, and maybe forevermore, flesh people and spirit people. Flesh people and spirit people. And I, and I want to do that. That's not a technical term. That's not a theological term. Well, maybe it is. But I want to do it because it's memorable. That it really uh, emphasizes the difference that exists between people who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the Spirit. So we have flesh people, we have spirit people. And what Paul is going to do for us in the section before us this morning is he going, he's going to describe these two kinds of people in terms of their life goals, their values, their desires... And their ultimate destinies. And in the process of, of doing that, he is, he is going to call for a decision in terms of whose side are you on. In verses 5 through Na'ara 8, really, he's going to speak of the flesh people. And he's going to describe flesh people. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, really, is flesh people. And then beginning in verse 9 through 11, he's going to describe spirit people. He's going to essentially do it in contrasting and comparative language. He's going to talk about what is it that characterizes the flesh person. What are their goals? What are their desires? What drives them in life? And ultimately, what is their destiny? Then he speaks of the spirit people and looks at it in similar ways. And then in verse 12 to 13, I'm just giving you this so you have a Kind of a general idea of where this thing's going. In verses 12 through 13, he boils it all down and calls for a decision. And he basically says in verses 12 through 13, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Are you a flesh person or are you a spirit person? And so that's where we're going with this. Whose side are you on? Let me look with you now just beginning in verse 5, at the first aspect of this conflict. And believe me, it is a real conflict. The first aspect that Paul gives us here in verse 5, he says, is that you must understand the contrast between the spirit and the flesh. You need to understand the contrast here between spirit and flesh. Now, when he uses the word in this, this uh, section, flesh, we, need, we just need to take a moment and, and uh, describe or define that for us. And, and what he's talking about here is human nature as corrupted, directed, and controlled by sin. So he's talking about the human nature as it has been corrupted, as it is directed, and as it is controlled by sin. That's what flesh is referring to here in this section. 
And he made this statement at the end of verse 4. He says that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There are those who walk according to the flesh. There are those who walk according to the Spirit. Those who walk according to the Spirit, he said, fulfill this requirement of the law. And I told you last time, the law of love. So he's going to go on now and he's going to continue this this, uh, thought in verse 5 and and pick it up and further elaborate on what it means to walk according to the flesh. That's really where we're going. The description of flesh people. So you notice in verse 5, he says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Contrast. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So you see the contrast that he makes. Now this expression, to set their minds upon... Phroneo is the Greek verb here, but it has at its core the idea of, of to be of someone else's mind or, or to, to be on someone's side. That's probably the easiest way to boil it down. It is to think and act in such a way that you, that you are on this person's side. You are like them. And so when he says here in verse 5 that those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, what he's saying is that those who are according to the flesh are on the side of the flesh. They're on the side of the flesh. Those who are according to the Spirit are on the side of the Spirit. That is, he places flesh and spirit in direct opposition to each other and they will produce opposite results. Those who are according to the flesh have taken the side of the flesh and they are against the Spirit. They choose to live their lives according to their sinful nature, according to their passions. They have their mind and heart set on the fleshly desires, those things corrupted by sin. This idea of two diametrically opposing realms or forces or directions, however you like that, it reminds me of the book of Proverbs. You know, you read through the book of Proverbs and it's constantly setting before you as the reader two directions, two paths, two women. You just see that through the book. You know, you have the, you have the wise woman who calls out and you have the adulteress who calls out. You have the path of life and you have the path of death before you. You have the way of wisdom. You have the way of folly. So those, that idea of two paths, two sides, two People calling to you is very prominent in the book of Proverbs. In fact, Proverbs 4, just listen to this. Proverbs 4, verses 14 through 19 lays it out nicely. It says, do not enter the path of the wicked and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they do evil and they are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence, the path of the wicked. But, contrast, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So the writer of Proverbs says you've got these two paths. You've got the way of the wicked. You've got the way of the righteous. And they move in opposite directions. And that's the idea here. 
two sides that are in opposition to each other. They are not in any way joined together in any kind of joint activity. To be on one side is to necessarily be opposed to the other side. There is no compromise. These are two divergent paths that lead you in two different directions. Let me just make this a little practical for us as we think about this contrast here. I just took a few minutes and and jotted a few things down that characterize flesh people and spirit people. What does the New Testament tell us about what are the characteristics of those who are spirit people and those who are flesh people? Now, these characteristics, it should be noted, occur in the corporate identity of the church. They occur in the corporate identity of the church, so they are readily applicable to what we're talking about right here. Romans 13, Romans 13, verse 13, lays out a few characteristics of flesh people. Romans 13, and I'm not, I'm not, I won't read it for you, but I'll just, you can turn it if you'd like, but I'll just kind of list them for you quick. Flesh people, Paul says, Romans 13, 13, are characterized by carousing. Carousing. That has the idea of, of um, brawling and, and uh, public disorder, even sexual orgy. Maybe a good way to think about that is a soccer game and its aftermath, carousing. Flesh people are characterized by drunkenness, Paul says. Drunkenness. They're characterized by sexual promiscuity. They're characterized by strife. They're characterized by jealousy. Chapter 14, verse 1, they're characterized by judgmental and critical attitudes. Again, this is, remember, occurring in the church. Over in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 28 to 31, Paul gives a few more characteristics of flesh people. They're characterized by stealing, rotten and putrid speech, wrath, clamor, Anger, slander. These are flesh people. Ephesians 5, verses 3 and 4. Dirty talks and, or filthy talk rather, and dirty jokes. These are what characterize flesh people. What about spirit people? What characterize spirit people? Romans 12, verses 10 through 13. A few characteristics there. Spirit people are characterized by preferring other people. Preferring other people. They're characterized by diligence. They're characterized by perseverance in the face of tribulation, hardship. They're characterized by a devotion to prayer. They're characterized by being hospitable. Chapter 13, verse 1, they're characterized by submission to the government. Ephesians 5, verses 19 through chapter 6, verse 9, just characteristics. In a lot of places we could have gone, I just grabbed a few here. Characteristics of spirit people. There's a, there's a thankfulness within them. They're thankful people. 
They're people who sing the praises of God both to Him and to others. They're submissive people. Wives to husbands, children to parents, employees to employers. These are the characteristics of spirit people. So the contrast is very strong, very vivid between flesh people and spirit people. Those who are according to the flesh, again, verse 5, Romans 8, set their minds on the things of the flesh. That is, they're on the side of the flesh. Those according to the spirit are on the side of the spirit. The very, very strong contrast here. I was thinking of a way to illustrate this. And um, I remember when we first moved here to California, it's been almost 17 years ago now. But we were, for whatever reason, we had to go into L.A. for something, which was a frightening experience to begin with. But as we were coming from whatever reason we had to go in there, we were coming from it. We were trying to get back on the on uh, the 10 freeway, which, by the way, is a very weird way to refer to a highway in any other part of the world except California, where it has the definite article, the 10 freeway, as if there are no other 10 freeways in the world. But anyway... We, uh, we uh, are getting on the 10, and the road sign says Santa Monica or um, San Bernardino. Do you know how confusing that is to somebody from out of town who has no idea where Santa Monica or San Bernardino is? Why not east or west? That would be really helpful. But it's Santa Monica and it's San Bernardino. And I'll tell you, I wasn't sure which way to turn, but there was one thing I was sure of that I was going to have to pick a side here. I was going to have to I couldn't I had to go one way or the other. And if I was going to to, uh, Santa Monica, I was clearly not going to San Bernardino and vice versa. And I think that's that's what Paul's talking about here. The contrast is so distinct, so sharp that if you're going one way, you're not going the other way. And if you're going This way, you're not going this way. You can't keep your foot in both places. It's not possible. So there's a contrast here, and we need to understand that contrast between the spirit and the flesh. Second aspect of the conflict here is we must understand the consequences of each side. Not only is there a a very sharp contrast here, there are real consequences related to which side you're on. Notice Paul introduces them here in verse 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death. You notice how he, he just builds the terminology here. Those who walk according to the flesh are now those who set their minds on the flesh. And then he goes on, verse 6, those who set their minds on the flesh. He's talking about the same person. He's just sort of building here using these expressions. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So those flesh people, those who are unredeemed, have their final consequence of death. That is, their respective allegiance leads them to death. 
And those whose minds are set on the Spirit, those who are on the side of the Spirit, have their consequence, which Paul says here is life and peace. Again, you see how diametrically opposed these two results are. You are in one place or the other. Flesh people are dead. Spirit people are alive. Flesh people are dead. Spirit people are alive. Now, death is fundamentally separation. You have to define death. You could define it, I think, in a very fundamental way as separation. Physical death is a separation of the body and spirit. Spiritual death is a separation as well. It is the separation of the soul from the presence of God. Spiritual death. So when it says here, the mind set on the flesh, that is, flesh people is death. They're saying that the unredeemed, the unbeliever is dead. Spiritually dead. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are separated from God. There is no relationship with their Creator. They are alienated from Him. In the context here of Romans 6-8, through they are a resident of the old age. They still are a resident of the old age. They are under the dominion of sin. They are under the power of the law. It's the arguments Paul has been making from chapter 6 on. They are spiritually unresponsive. And as Paul will further tell us, they are even in opposition to God. They're dead. Some number of years ago, there was a man who was attending here with his family. And when they first began attending, he was a flesh man, a flesh person. He was lost. He was unredeemed. His mind was set on the things of the flesh. His wife was a spirit person. And through the providence of God, I I became involved in their life and ended up doing two funerals for this family. One for a child that they lost and another for this man's father. So over the course of a period of time of doing those funerals and preaching the gospel at those funerals, I had opportunity to have input into this man's life. Well, the Spirit of God worked an amazing miracle in this man's life and opened his eyes to the truth of the gospel. And he he went from being a flesh person to a spirit person. He became a believer, became a follower of Jesus Christ. He was saved. And right after that happened, and I will never forget this till the day I die, I can tell you exactly what seat he was sitting in. After service, I happened to be walking out. It was over in that area. I happened to be walking out. And he said to me, right after service, he said, uh, he said, that was the best sermon I have ever heard you preach. And I smiled and I said to him, that is the first sermon you have ever heard me preach. The first one. He'd been sitting there for months and months and months. Sound waves had been bouncing off of his eardrums. But that's all that was happening. There was no comprehension going on at all. He was unresponsive, even in opposition to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was a flesh person, dead, dead. 
But when God regenerated his heart, all of a sudden the truth of the gospel resided and he heard it. He heard it. Flesh people, those on the side of the flesh, is death. But, verse 6, contrast, the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Do you see it? Those to be on the side of the flesh are spiritually dead. And to be on the side of the Spirit, Paul says, is life and peace. Just as death is ultimately separation from God, so life and peace speaks of a relationship with God. Jesus said, John 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. It is to know God. It is to be in a relationship with God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, the Apostle John writes there, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. To be a spirit person is to have life. That is, to have a relationship with your Creator through Jesus Christ, His Son. It is to have life and peace. Do you see it? Peace. This is not a subjective idea here. This is not peace of mind. This is an objective reality. The objective reality of salvation entered into through justification. Chapter 5 of this very epistle, Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, the hostility has ceased. By the way, again, notice the direct contrast here between the description of the flesh person in verse 7. They are hostile toward God. Through this whole section, Paul just is hammering away contrast, contrast, difference. Nothing, no correspondence. Whose side are you on? Flesh or uh, spirit people, rather, to be on the side of the flesh, have the mind set on the, excuse me, on the spirit, have the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. It is to know God. It is to be reconciled to God. Third aspect. We must understand the condition of those in the flesh. Condition. First was the consequence, or pardon me, the contrast between spirit and flesh. Then the consequences of spirit people and flesh people. And now the condition of flesh people. Verse 7, because. Do you see that? He's going to explain here why the mindset on the flesh is death. Why is that so? Why is it? The answer, verse 7, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Why is the mindset on the flesh? Why is the flesh person? Why is the unredeemed person dead? The answer is, is because he is hostile to God and he is unable to ever please God. 
He can only order his life in a way that is hostile to God and will incur God's wrath. Hostile to God. The mindset on the flesh, verse 7, is hostile to God. The idea here is that he is against God. That he hates God. In fact, James 4, verse 4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. These are strong terms. We, we don't like to think of people who are without Christ as being hating of God, being hostile to God. But that's what the Scripture tells us. That's their spiritual condition. That's their state. They are fiercely hostile to God, in fact. They are against all that God is and all that He requires. And in particular, His demand for their allegiance. You notice that verse 7 of the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. They hate God and in the particular, they hate His rule over them. They refuse it. shouldn't surprise us, by the way, because if you turn way back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, you see the first expression of this hostility. Genesis 3, we'll just jump in in verse 5. Satan, through the serpent, comes to Eve and he says, verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Remember, their prohibition was not to eat of this tree. But see, this tree looked good. This tree was going to make them wise. This tree was going to allow them to be in control of their own destiny. So in rebellion against their Creator, they took and they ate. And they passed that on to all of their future generations. Chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. The flesh person is determined to assert his independence. Determined. Determined to be the center of his own life, to be his own God. Make his own rules. Establish his own ethics. And he can't help but hate the real God whose very existence makes a mockery of his claim of independence. The unbeliever wants to kill God. Get him out of the way. 
The psalmist says in Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us throw off the yoke of His rule. We do not need Him. We do not want Him. We will define Him out of existence. Beloved, that is the wickedness behind the lie of evolution. We do not need God. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury. There will come a day, the Bible tells us, when the peoples will call to the mountains to fall on them and to shield them from the wrath of the Lamb. Today they deny His existence. They'll come up with intricate philosophical arguments or pseudoscientific formula to attempt to prove that God does not exist. It is not an intellectual problem. It is a moral problem. Man hates God. He doesn't want God in his life. He is in rebellion against Him. And given the opportunity, he would nail Him to a cross. Back to Romans 8. Man's hatred of God and his rebellion against God's claim upon him expressed through his law are really inseparable from each other. As a rebel, he hates God. And as one who hates God, he rebels. It is part of the package. He is hostile to God. But it goes further than that. It goes further than that. Look at the rest of verse 7. He does not subject himself to the law of God, for he is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The condition of those in the flesh, the condition of flesh people, the condition of the unregenerate, is that they are hostile towards God and they do not have the ability within themselves to ever please Him. That is, to ever change their orientation towards Him. They hate Him and they will always hate Him and there is nothing they can do but hate Him unless He changes them. Unless He changes them. They are not even able to do so. They are unable to change their orientation. They are unable to escape their hostility. They lack the ability Dunamai is the Greek verb here. They are unable to change, to obey God, to love God. They cannot ever please Him. They are in bondage to a power that is in fundamental opposition to God as to who He is and what He requires. Theologians refer to this state of the unsaved as total depravity. 
total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that a person is as evil as they could be. That's not what it means. But what it means is that they are so completely in the grip of the power of sin that it extends over every aspect of their being. It controls their body, their soul, their mind, their will, their emotions. It is all under the power of sin. Totally depraved. And that is true of all people. All people. By a nature derived from Adam, they are incurably bent towards their own self-will and opposition to God. The various sins by which they manifest that opposition, that unlawful desire, can, are very wide. Some go after pleasure. Some go after position. Some go after power. Others go after riches. Whatever it is that is the particular manifestation of that depravity, it is nonetheless there. They are merely symptoms of the same problem, which is an idolatrous bent towards self-worship, to the dethroning of God, to the establishment of themselves as God. They follow Satan in the very first sin, which he said, I will ascend to the hand of the Most High. I will be like God. And the frightening thing is, according to what Paul tells us here, there's nothing they can do about it. Nothing. They cannot rescue themselves. Now I grant you, I will grant you that many, many people who are spiritually dead, many, many flesh people, do things from a human perspective that is both fine and noble. They love their wives and husbands. They love their children. They are law-abiding citizens. They are generous. They are religious. They are friendly. They are pleasant to be around. I will readily grant you that. Yet the Bible says that all of these good deeds, all of these good things are like filthy rags. Like filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. That is, in, in terms of their inherent motivation, what drives people to do the good things they do, those who are flesh people, is self-glorifying. They do what they do ultimately not for the glory of God because they are hostile towards God. They hate God. They are in rebellion against God. They do it because it makes them look good. It makes them feel good. It is for their glory and not His. And therefore, it is entirely filthy in the sight of God. It does not please Him in any way and it does not earn His eternal favor. The implications of this are staggering. The implications of this are staggering with regard to what's wrong with people and what's wrong with society, right? 
What is wrong with people? Why do people do what they do? Have you ever read in the newspaper or watched something on television and shake your head and go, why do they do that? What's wrong with this world? Why is it so mixed up? Why is there so much cruelty in this world? Why is there such a lack of love? Why do people cut me off on the freeway? It's staggering. Because what it means, beloved, is that no amount of education... No social engineering, no human affection, no emotional or sensual manipulation can or ever will reach the heart of depraved man. Do you understand that? No amount of education. That is, you cannot give someone enough information to have them turn away from sin. You can't educate people out of it. You can't socially engineer them out of it. The elimination of poverty in whatever means or way you think it might be eliminated will not rescue people from bondage to sin. It won't. Be they poor or be they rich, they are still totally depraved. You can't love people out of it. You can't befriend them out of it. You can't appeal to their emotions. You can't manipulate them through their senses and overcome their depravity. You can't. There is only one way. Only one hope. Only one means of rescue or delivery, and that is for God, through His Holy Spirit, to burst the bonds of sin that hold them, to take away the blinders from their eyes, to unstop their ears, to take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, to regenerate them through the washing of water and His Word, to give them new life. That is the only way they will be rescued. Therefore, all attempts at evangelism, listen to me now, all attempts at evangelism that rely on anything other than preaching the Gospel may succeed in producing church attenders, but they will never produce disciples of Jesus Christ. That's huge. That's huge. The only, the only, the only way to make a disciple of Jesus Christ is for God Himself to rescue them from their depravity, place His Spirit within them, and then they will begin to grow as they feed upon His Word. That's the only way. You can fill up a building in a lot of different ways. And you can produce attenders, tares among the wheat. You cannot produce disciples apart from the work of the regenerating Spirit of God. That's it. 
So all we have to offer somebody is the gospel. That's it. Now maybe I should say, and I will say here, that this does not invalidate various means of establishing relationships with people in order to share the gospel with them. We don't just need to rent an airplane or a helicopter and fly over the community with a bunch of loudspeakers and blare the gospel and say we're done. Or drive down the 10 freeway and throw handfuls of tracks out the window and consider it done. God has in His providence ordained that the preaching of the gospel occurs through vessels of clay, that is you and I. And that it occurs most effectively in the context of a relationship with a person. But don't ever think you can love them into the kingdom. You can never make so strong a relationship that when the rapture happens, they get caught in the upswell. Okay? It's not going to happen. And isn't it true the hardest thing to do is to bridge from the relationship to the gospel? Don't you find that true? But it's only the gospel that will save. What is that gospel? What is that gospel that will save? It's here for us in the text. It begins with a fundamental understanding that you are lost. That you do not have the life of God in you. That you are a flesh person. That your life is characterized by those kinds of things that I read and many others. That you are living for yourself. That your God is your appetite. That you are justly deserving of eternal punishment in a place called hell. And when you come to that realization, you at that moment in time come to understand there is only one hope for you. Only one. That God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that He might live the perfect life that you cannot live. That His righteousness is full and complete. And that He then willingly went to a Roman cross to die. That His Father might pour out on Him the just wrath for all the sin of all time for all the people of God. That the cup of the wrath of Almighty God was drunk there by His Son. And when He said, Tetelestai, it is finished, what He said was that all of the wrath has been extinguished. It is gone. And God the Father demonstrated the reality of that truth by on the third day raising Him from the dead, for death could not contain Him, for He did not die for His own sin, but for yours. So, if you will by faith believe 
that gospel message. Repent. Turn from your rebellion. Turn away from your independent way of living. Throw yourself, cast yourself on the mercy of God. Call out to Jesus Christ. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Save me. I believe that you died for me. The Bible says you will be saved. That God Himself will enter into you. That through His Holy Spirit, you will now have the life of God. You will be a spirit person. And a spirit person is a person of life and peace. If you've not called out to God yet to save you, you need to do that. I urge you to do that and to do that now. Do not wait. The Scripture says that the evil one comes to snatch away the Word. Do not allow the seed to sit on the path snatched. Throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. We finish here. Ron, we're going to sing together. There will be some folks over here by this lighted cross. They are here to pray with you. They are here to answer your spiritual questions, to open the Bible with you and to show you the way of salvation. Maybe you just want to come and and to pray because there's Something going on in your life and you, you want something to pray with you or you just feel a need to pray by yourself. Behind that door there, the prayer room is a, a wonderful place to quietly be alone to pray. You come and make use of it. Maybe you've been even coming here a while and the Spirit has placed it upon your heart to unite with us in membership. We would welcome that. You come and We'll talk with you about that too. Let's pray. Our Father, not by power, nor by might, but by Your Spirit can a man be born again. Our Father, I ask You to do a mighty work in our midst here this morning to deliver people from their bondage to sin. To open their eyes to the truth that they would be like that man those years ago who finally hear the truth for the first time. I pray our Father as well for those of us who know the truth that the sobering reality of what a life of the flesh really is all about would renew within us again our commitment to live in accordance with who we really are, that is, spirit people. Do Your work among us. Glorify Your name in this place. We take none of the glory. It is yours and yours alone. It is your prerogative to save. 
Oh, please, Lord, save today. Amen.